Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports, and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyze each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Missing Michael really is a puzzle. In this series, I've spread out the pieces and tried to create as complete a picture as possible. But I've held some pieces back. I'm still not sure how they fit in or if they fit in at all. It's my hope that someone listening holds the final piece of this puzzle that will bring answers for the Dunahee family and for everyone who has been missing Michael for 30 long years. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is Island Crime Season 3, Missing Michael. In 2011, 20 years after Michael's disappearance, Crystal Dunahy is awarded the Order of British Columbia, the highest honor given to those who serve with great distinction to the benefit of their fellow citizens. Crystal is recognized for her advocacy for missing children and for her role in helping to establish BC's Amber Alert. I got the order of BC. <laughs> I don't, I've, never, I've never known anyone who got it. So what happens? Do you... you go to the government house? Lieutenant governor. Lieutenant general. general's house. And there's a massive ceremony. And Trying to get Crystal Dunahy to acknowledge her contributions to the cause of missing kids is not easy. Because it was available in the U.S. Because I believe that's where it started was in, in the U.S. So it was just a matter of getting, the, getting it into Canada and get it more widely known if if uh, help was required, yeah. You, ha you now have these alerts across the boards. So you've got more people looking now, whereas 30 years ago, we were dealing with fax machines because we didn't have the technology and there was no cell phones. Mm -hmm. It was fax machines and radio that we were dealing with. Really, she is the humblest of advocates, still shying away from a spotlight she never wanted to be in. Right. So now with technology and the overhead um, traffic signs and things like that. You, you get it out there much quicker and more people are seeing it faster. But there is little doubt her efforts, the work of the Dunahee family and Child Find, have played a role in the evolution of how missing children cases are approached in Canada. If another child happened to go missing, who to put you, who who to speak to and how to, what to do and put you in connection with the parties that can help and get it out there quicker because we had we had to register with each province, we had to register with each state, and within each state, any other agencies, individually. You couldn't just go to one mass person and say, this is what I, I need help with. So it was very involved and time-consuming and exhausting, and emotionally exhausting, because you had to repeat it over and over and over again, hundreds of different agencies that are out there. In this series, we focused on Michael's story, but in the 30 years since Michael vanished, so much has changed in what can be done to keep kids safe and in how to find them should they vanish.
In this episode, I'll explore just what has changed since March 24, 1991. And there is no more powerful example than the story of Kenan Hebert. In 2011, the year Crystal receives her Order of BC, Kenan, a three-year-old boy, a boy not much younger than Michael Dunahy was when he vanished, is taken from his bed while he sleeps. So my name is Paul Hebert, and um, currently managing a hotel here in Peace River. Uh, we, we moved to Peace River, Alberta here in 2012. Yeah, here we are today. My name is Tammy Hebert. Hmm, what, what about me? Well, in the last 10 years, I've joined the fire department and drive school bus. In 2011, the Heberts and their children are living in the community of Sparwood, a small coal mining town in the mountains of British Columbia. They are new to the area. They moved to Sparwood a few years earlier as Paul has taken a job selling houses on a golf course development. In 2011, the family is living in one of those homes. Tammy describes it as a lonely little end of a cul-de-sac, but they are making the most of their new life in their new community. Leading up to that, our lifestyles, but it was good because we do a lot of outreach and we like the community. And so we do barbecues, we go to the lakes and you know, just enjoy. We're always big on going fishing, hiking, both on Alberta and the BC side. We had best of both worlds in Sparwood kind of thing because you can travel both ways. Um, yeah, you know, we do daily trips to Tim Hortons and Blairmore or Fernie and, you know, <laughs> just hang out. And then geocaching actually was a big thing back then. And we were just looking at getting into geocaching, doing little treasure hunts because there you had like trails everywhere and stuff like that where you can go and check up these little geocaches. And it, was, it was a good little community. We, we loved the community that was there and, um, and the people and the bears. And <laughs> They have just returned from a trip to see family and doing fun end-of-summer activities. Wednesday, September 7th, begins as an ordinary day for Tammy and the kids. But for Paul, an important career moment looms. So we were just in the middle of the big sale, actually, a big pro uh, proposal of that morning. So my mind was pretty well set on you know, get the sale and getting everything ready for that. And it was, a, it was, a, it would have been a big day that day. Here's how this ordinary day turns into an extraordinary story for the Hebert family. Kenan has always been our late night child. So right from day one, he would, did not like to go to bed early. And even to this day, he's a night owl and likes to sleep in in the morning. And that morning, we were just laying in bed and all the kids came in and were like climbing all over us and kept asking them, oh, where's Keenan? And they're like, oh, he's sleeping, he's still in bed. So we just kept them all in there so that they wouldn't go wake him up and just let him sleep. And then when I got out of bed and I went in his room to just go check on him and Tom was time to get up or whatever and make the beds, he wasn't there. And I'm like, okay, well, that's weird. And I checked in the other room and he wasn't there. So I thought, okay, he's downstairs. No, no big deal. Went downstairs and Drew and Cassidy, the older two, they're at the computers doing their schoolwork. And I'm like, 
where's Keenan? And they're like, I don't know. I haven't seen him. So I'm like, uh-oh. Yeah, I was, I was in the shower getting ready for my day. It was, you know, because it's early in the morning and the kids were getting up and... Went down in the basement and checked there and there was no Keenan. And then I, then I like ran upstairs and that's when Paul was in the shower and I'm like, Keenan is missing. You can picture the scene. Tammy has no reason to think anything bad has happened to her child. She lives in a safe, small community. But as she moves from room to room to room, the concern mounts. That's when I like tore the whole house apart as I was I was like flipping the beds up to see if he was in the beds, opening all the cupboards and everywhere I could think that Closets. he would be yeah. hiding, yeah. Just tore it apart and he wasn't there and when Paul finally came down. Because I thought they were playing a joke on me because I thought, well, you know, well, here we are, big day. And then you're making this big panic until I come out and then I realized, oh, the house is like completely ripped apart. Then I realized, oh my goodness, something's actually going on here. Well, and you, you do. I I know with my own little one, she like, and still does, like to hide in like yeah. a cupboard or, you know, just sometimes for a little while, just uh, it's cozy or something. Like, is, is that what you're thinking at first? Yeah, well, you don't think of somebody coming in the middle of the night and taking a kid. That's like the last thing you believe ever crossed your mind, right? So a kid is a kid. Kids hide, kids do their weird things or whatever, but- He could play, he could have been outside or- Whoever would have thought someone actually come in and stole him. <laughs> That's not even on the radar of reality. You know, it's a TV show. It's not something that you see for real, That's right? That happens to other people. The Hebert's fears heighten as they realize Keenan is not in the home. They still aren't thinking he has been snatched, but the possibility that he could come to harm is now at the forefront of their thoughts. Once you realize he wasn't in the house, now there's a bigger concern. Did he sleepwalk? What was going on? Like, we still don't know what's going on. So you, you assume everything, right? And of course, like any parent, you're thinking the worst of everything too. And because so, the whole area where we were living was a construction because they were building houses there's like big machinery moving and the first thing paul did i think was to uh go tell them to like stop in case he was like hiding in a culvert or somewhere where they wouldn't see him thinking they you know maybe he was sleepwalking maybe he went out in the middle of the night locked himself out like you just don't know right you're still trying to grasp at straws of what's really going on you just don't know you're trying to think of anything possible because he's not there and again, kidnapping is the last thing on your mind because we're in Canada. Like, that's the something that you don't experience. And you're in a small town community. There was no bad blood. There was no nothing. There was nobody in our life that would ever be a threat that way or anything. So, you know, it's just not something that you're thinking right away. Someone stole my kid. So you start looking around and then there's a search party of people. Then we realize, we better phone the police. We don't know where he is. Maybe he's wandering. We don't know, but we just don't know. So that's when we phoned the police and said, listen, our son's missing, right? He went to bed last night. He's not here in the morning. Please help us find him. Um, and then we were dealing with the RCMP. I'm just answering their questions, right? Because they've got to start from zero and work their way up. 
And so meanwhile, people were, the word got around pretty quickly on Sparwood. And so people were gathering to do a search and rescue. They also, by I think 10 o'clock in the morning, the RCMP dispatched the dogs to come out, the canine unit to come out. And some helicopters, I think it was. Police zero in on a 46-year-old man named Randall Hopley as a suspect. Hopley has a lengthy criminal record, including sex assaults, break and enter, and attempted abduction of a child. At the time Keenan is taken, Hopley has been squatting in the area. Kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together. They kind of knew what was going on. Yeah, he missed his check-in. He missed his check-in the day before because he was on parole and on probation or whatever. And then he didn't do his check-in that e the, the Sunday evening. And so then they, you know, and then that Monday, by the time that his check-in was supposed to be, he never showed up again. So that's why they knew it was him. The call to the local police detachment in Sparwood triggers a chain of reactions. Brian Massey was a superintendent with the RCMP before he retired quite recently. But back then, he is the regional duty officer in charge in a 24-7 role created specifically to deal with this kind of matter. He gets the call that day about the circumstances unfolding in Sparwood. I'm contacted uh, by the uh, local detachment commander and uh, he's providing me the details just as to, uh, you know, that he would like to initiate uh, an Amber Alert. So in my conversation with, with the, uh, with the uh, Sparwood investigator, I'm asking him some, some uh, very uh, critical questions, crucial questions, and just to make sure they meet the criteria for an Amber Alert. There's very specific criteria. The, the, the victim is, is under the age of 18, and uh, that we as police have reasonable grounds to believe that the victim has been abducted, and the police have reasonable grounds to believe the victim is in imminent danger. Uh, the, that's three. Uh, number four, uh, police have obtained enough ev descriptive evidence or information about the victim and abductor or involved vehicles to believe that disseminating to the public any information that would help locate the victim. And the last question is that police believe the alert can be issued in a time frame that will provide reasonable expectation that the child could be returned or the abductor could be apprehended. I can recall being in our Vancouver newsroom when this happens. The Amber Alert quickly triggers a regular broadcast on our radio station. I've seen my news colleagues hustle on a breaking news story, but never with quite the urgency you see when an Amber Alert comes across the desk. When the Amber Alert is issued, it's a province-wide uh, alert that uh, coordinates the resources of all the police agencies within the in the province, media uh, especially, and uh, the public, uh, to provide immediate and up-to-date information uh, uh, about the child abduction. Again, looking for the awareness and uh, many eyes uh, are out there and uh, you know, it's a widespread media broadcast and uh, again, just soliciting information from anybody that's out there, the public, general public. By now, the Hebert's worry that their child has wandered off has been replaced by a much more chilling thought. Keenan has been taken. We kind of just had to go with the flow, right? 
this is where it's at. The professionals are thinking this is what it is. And now then there's a whole other series of bad thinking now, right? Yeah, because every news article about anything bad that you've ever heard goes through your mind. I had kind of wandered across the street, just was sitting on the front porch to get a, just get away from everybody. And I was just crying. And I remember Paige came up to me. She would have been four. And she was crying just because I was crying. She didn't even understand anything that really that was happening. Then it's like, okay, that was my like, I got to get my shit together because these little ones are watching me moment by moment. And when moment by moment is too much, you just one breath to the next. Listening to the Hebert's story, I'm struck by some of the similarities to the Dunahee's experience. The ordinary family encountering the horror of a child abduction. The community support that is both comforting and overwhelming. And that need to stay strong and be brave for the sake of the family. Trying to keep it together mm -hmm. is extremely difficult because there's just so much going on, right? You have to be strong for everybody. You do. Not just the kids and you. We, we had our little breakdowns though. I remember the first night we weren't allowed back in our house because it was a crime scene. So we were given, oh, we were given so much money to help. It was unbelievable, but we needed to go buy clothes because the kids didn't have clothes or toothbrushes or toothpaste and all that sort of thing. So we went to the store and where something as simple as, you know, picking out toothbrushes, you automatically pick out the amount you need. And then it's like, we're missing one. I said, we'll buy it anyway, because he's going to come back. <laughs> the hours turn into days. The media spotlight intensifies, and with it, a deluge of leads. We, we did it the first evening that, you know, it was a possibility it was Randall Hopley. Okay. You know, that, that he was one of the suspects at that time. So that was as much as we knew um, going forward. So we had a bit of a profile on him to know who he was. So we were in the war room. We got to see a lot of the tactics that they were doing and they were showing us a lot of the, a lot of the efforts that they were doing and they were doing a really great job, but there was a lot of hindrances as well. So a lot of people were phoning in all across the province saying, you know, we spotted them here, we spotted them there. And they got to follow all of them. And they have to follow up every single phone call as if the, the real one is there. They had, you know, I remember they were saying that they had sidekicks that were phoning and saying that, you know, he was at the bottom of the lake and was by a yellow house. And, and they had to take him all serious because they weren't sure if one of them was, was maybe a kidnapper who was, you know, trying to give a hint or whatever right, where he was, right? So they had to follow up on every lead. They were getting 200, 300 calls an hour. Tammy and Paul put their trust in the authorities and their faith in God. Yeah, your, your, your head is like, as if you walked into a beast hive, right? You're just getting bombarded by all these different things. So we just took it as, you know, they got to do their job. And we had to turn to faith because that's the only thing we knew what to do. It was the only sure thing we knew. And so we accepted it one way or another, you know, that we just wanted closure. If he was passed on or if he wasn't, we were ready for both, you know. 
but we wanted closure. That was one of our big things. And, you know, because after 24 hours, they were preparing us, right? Saying that after 24 hours, there's a good chance you're not getting them back alive. Really? They had that conversation with you? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. So getting him back alive was pretty, uh, it was, miraculous. yeah, pretty miraculous. There was no other word you could really use. You know, it was, it was like he came back from the dead. It was absolutely amazing. After a 24 hour period, you, you know, your, your, your odds are almost not even existing anymore. Right. And so we were expecting that they were going to find him dead somewhere. That was pretty well where we were at. Um, and we were preparing. preparing our hearts for it, preparing our minds for it. And then, late one night, four days after Keenan Hebert disappeared? Yeah, that night we went to sleep. We were trying to go to sleep, and yeah, Tammy tells the story a lot better than I do, because it's all kind of a fuzz to me, but she, she laughs about it all the oh, time. It's so, so funny. <laughs> what? <laughs> the um, show home that we were staying in, it had this upstairs window and veranda that just kind of looked outside, and you could sit there, and you could see our house. And Paul was downstairs with the boys, and I was just sitting upstairs on the couch looking out the window, and I saw this vehicle drive by the house, and... This, there was like people running around and everything and I'm like what the heck is going on I go downstairs and I wake up wake up Paul and I'm like Paul somebody's outside somebody's you know looking around our house and everything so he gets up and he goes out there I don't know what he's doing I thought it was like the media trying to get into the house and get like a better footage or whatever of the house so uh, I was sneaking up to see who they were and this guy comes up and he walks up to me and he says who are you? And I'm like, no, no, who are you? Because I'm going to be like pulling some heads off. <laughs> and he's like, well, we're, we're RCMP. And I'm like, baloney, you guys are. They're in normal clothing, right? Street civilian clothing. He says, what are you guys doing here? And he says, we got a phone call, 911 call that Keenan was home. I'm like, well, no, we're across the street. And he's like, no, we got a 911 call saying that he was dropped off back at the house. Paul has only been gone a few minutes but it seems like forever to Tammy. He's gone, for, it seems like forever. So I wake up my son-in-law, Daniel, and I said, Paul went out there, there's somebody at the house and he's not back yet, I don't know what to do. So Daniel goes out there to get Paul and like five minutes later, he comes back and I open the door and he's just standing there, Daniel. And he's like, white as a ghost. And all he says is he's back. I'm like, what do you mean? What do you mean? He's back, who's back? And he's like, Keenan, he's back. Here's how Paul describes the moment he enters his home. We open the doors and that's where his blankets were on the, on the floor of the door. And I was, I started running in and like, freeze. So I stopped, I had, because to me, I was excited about going in. And they went in ahead of me to clear the house. And that's when they saw Keenan sleeping on the couch. He's here, he's here on the couch. And I was asking him, is he dead or is he alive? Mm. And then they were, then they're like, no, he's alive, he's sleeping. And so then I fell, well, yeah, I made some weird noise and <laughs> fell to the ground, bellow, and yeah, I don't know, I lost full composure of who I was. And, and then, uh, yeah, got a hold of, of Keenan and 
And Tammy was not much longer after that. And I just remember running across the street. My legs are like jello and I walk it. I open the front door of the house inside, folded neatly beside the door is his blankets and everything. And Paul is standing there holding Keenan. I just like drop to my knees and I'm like crying and bawling. And I'm like, oh my gosh, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. And then I, when I finally compose myself, I like peel him away from Paul and I didn't let go of him till I had to at the hospital. Keenan is home. Keenan is alive. The 911 call the police received comes from Keenan's abductor, Randall Hopley. And so then Randall Hopley, what he had done is he had phoned 911 after dropping him off in the house and left. He phoned 911 to ensure them that he dropped them off at the right house because he couldn't remember if it was the right house and there was nobody in the house. So he wanted to make sure he was safe. I can also recall this day in the Vancouver newsroom. This is not the way most people, certainly most cynical journalists, thought the Hebert story would end. Here's the RCMP's Brian Massey once again. The young fella, the, the suspect, uh, had returned the young fella to his home. The family had moved out of the home and were staying, uh, staying somewhere else. And uh, again, it's just the, uh, the uh, young fella had been taken from his home. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's, he was returned to his home by, by the suspect. From my, my standpoint as a police officer, I, I feel certain that having that hammer alert out there uh, kind of made that individual, the suspect, stay local and not travel move around in the throughout the area because as uh, memory serves me correct here again he wasn't that far from uh, from where the child was taken so it was a uh, uh, you know that's one of the benefits of it many people looking and and uh, and, and watching and uh, just uh, you know looking for the young fella so I guess that, that information out there in a, you know, uh, as quick as possible to as many people as possible. And, uh, you know, it's the, the many eyes and uh, are, are looking for whatever information we do provide during the Amber Alert, uh, you know, whether description of, of the, the missing, description of the, the suspect or any vehicle that may be involved. And uh, it, it provides a, you know, key and then critical information to investigators. And, and if I were a parent uh, involved in such a thing there, boy, I would want as many people out there looking and watching and, and uh, you know, try, trying to help me re recover my child. After the break, the incredible story of what happens when Paul Hebert meets Randall Hopley, his son's abductor, face to face. Hi, I'm Christy Lee, the creator of Canadian True Crime. Join me for an immersive deep dive into some of the most thought-provoking true crime cases in Canada. Using facts curated from court documents, inquiry reports and news archives, I carefully unravel and analyse each case, exposing the pitfalls of the criminal justice system that everyone needs to know about. Find Canadian True Crime wherever you listen to podcasts or visit canadiantruecrime.ca. 
For four long days, Paul and Tammy believed their son, Keenan, could well be dead. They had entertained the worst possible outcome. And then, miraculously, he is home. But Randall Hopley is still on the run. And then, just days later, the manhunt for Keenan's abductor, Randall Hopley, is over. Paul recalls the police facilitating a meeting between he and Hopley. I don't know how it worked out, but the RCMP did bring me in to talk with him. Um, and then when I did talk with Mr. Hopley, uh, you know, our biggest question was, what did you do to him? Why did you do this to him? And, you know, his answers were simple. You know, he wanted a friend. And so when he got a hold of Keenan, but when he realized that um, Keenan didn't want to be there, wanted to go back home, he returned him back home. But, and I'm like, well, why would you call 911? And he's like, well, I didn't want him to get kidnapped. Because I asked him, like, you know, when we did the plea about bringing him to a parking lot or into a safe place, and, you know, he didn't. He brought him back to the house. Like, he risked coming all the way back to the house through blockades and everything, which we don't know how that ever happened. But anyways, when he returned him, he wasn't sure. So he, that's why he called 911 to make sure he was safe. He wanted to make sure Keenan was taken care of. But the guy, you know, he's got a, a mentality of an eight-year-old person. So um, what he thinks and what we think are two different things, right? He didn't want a baby because he knew he couldn't take care of a baby. That was Jeremiah. And when he was going to take Caleb, but he saw his scars on his chest and realized... And a big picture. And a big a... picture of the ECMO that Caleb was on. So he looked at that and said, I can't take care of him. So there was reasons. He don't want to take the daughter because he didn't like girls. So the only thing was left was Keenan. So you know. he said he was heavy as a brick. Yeah, he was heavy as a brick. He was having a hard time packing, yeah, packing him to the car. So how do you how do you manage that conversation? I honestly I gave it to God because I was afraid that a human side of me would have come out and ripped his head off. But you know, um, at the same time, I realized that I got exactly what I asked for. I wanted my son back. As angry as I wanted to be, I got what I wanted. And so the rest of it was just my pride and my, my self-hurt. At the end of the day, we tell the story of happy ending. I can't be angry with that. The day I interview the Heberts just happens to be the 10th anniversary of Keenan's abduction. Today, Keenan is a teen. The family moved a few years after Keenan's abduction. They wanted to be close to family and to have a fresh start. In the years between Keenan's abduction and today, Tammy has become a cancer survivor with a double mastectomy. Paul continues their faith-based work, now a lay minister with Bikers for Christ, and their large family is thriving. Paul and Tammy have been incredibly generous with their story. I don't want to intrude much more into their lives, but I do want to know how Keenan emerged from his childhood trauma. He just woke up like, hey, hi, Dad, how are you, kind of thing. Everybody else was like, you know, freaking out. And he was like, everything's okay, guys, you know, like, you know, yeah. It was like he went away for a couple of days. He smelled like juice. Yeah, he smelled like juice. He smelled like juice. The Heberts take their boy to the hospital, where they learn 
he has not been abused. And Keenan? Well, he doesn't remember much about those four days now at all. When his mom asks him why he didn't cry out when he was snatched from his bed. Why, why did you, like, why didn't you, you know, cry or say anything? But he's like, I just thought mommy was taking me, I thought you were taking me for a drive. But I mean, he was three. So at night before we would go to bed, part of the whole routine because he was potty training was we'd wake him up and go take him to take him to the bathroom. So he was like totally used to being picked up when he's sleeping. And so it was nothing to be care for him to be packed out. He just figured it was a normal thing. He used to remember more, but he's forgetting. But he still remembers little, little bits and bits. pieces. Yeah. And but not too much. He was, he's never said anything negative. He's always said this guy was always nice to him. And, you know, but yeah, there was no real trauma. There was no real. He talks you know. about the, the juice and the pudding and playing in a hole that was in the wall and going for <laughs> walks on the train tracks. Yeah. Never anything, never anything bad. The little redheaded boy is now growing into a young man. How is Keenan now? How's he doing? Good. He's a teenager. Oh, no. Poor you. <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's good. You know, he's talked to a few people before about it. And, you know, like he says, like, I don't know what to say, Dad. Like, I don't remember much about, about it, you know. He's tall and he's a redhead still. So he's, he's, a, he's got a sweet heart. He's, you know, gentle heart and, you know, and he loves his nature and loves fishing, ice, ice fishing. So he's got all the patience in the world. So, yeah. What gets me is through the years, like when he, when he was three and abducted, there's so many things about him that I would never have known if we didn't get him back. Like he loves everything, nature and bugs and rocks and the sun, the moon, the stars, he just loves it all. And you know, if, if we didn't get him back, those are things I would never ever have known about him. Michael's family, of course, continues to ask those questions. They never got their happy ending. At this point, they have no ending at all. We're lucky that we get to experience, you know, yeah, he was abducted. We have a second chance with them where there's so many families out there, they don't get that, you know? And yeah, we, we experienced the loss, we experienced the hurt, but you know, we got to experience the joy of him coming back. And there's so many families out there that we've met and we know, they don't get to experience the second half of our story. And, and that to us is, you know, pretty sad. I don't know how parents do it. You know, when they lose their, their kids at a young age and, you know, they miss out on so much of their children. We're every day just thankful that we, we were able to carry on this relationship with our son. And, you know, there's a lot of families that don't get the second chance we got. You're always wondering, who would he be now? Paul Hebert believes the Amber Alert that Crystal Dunahee helped establish here played a pivotal role in keeping Keenan alive. Knowing that it was out 
where people are starting to look for Keenan, um, keeping an eye out for him. Because if this was somebody else who was coming through town, uh, because there's so many different type of abductions, right? It would be a good peace of mind for people to know there's an ambulance gone out, people are watching out for this kid, um, you know, whoever it is, right? I, I think that's important. I think you can save people's lives that way. Um, it makes people aware. Um, so yeah, no, I, I totally support the Ambulance Alert program. Randall Hopley served a six-year sentence for taking Keenan. He was assessed as being a high risk for violent and sexual reoffending by police when he was released from prison. He is bound by a 10-year long-term supervision order. And you might think that Paul and Tammy would be angry about that, that they would want revenge, would want to see Hopley locked up forever or worse. But Paul and Tammy forgive Randall Hopley for taking their son. Um, no, like we're okay. Like we're, you know, he's done his time. He's done what he's, you know, where it's at. But it's still sad. He's still a human being, and he's got nothing. He, his mother has passed away since then. Um, the people who abused him before he went, before our incident ever come around, you know, the abuse, the fact that he's simple, um, took advantage of him. He has nothing. So what is he going to do when he gets out? He's going to go back to what he knows. So how do we correct that? How does that change? Our biggest thing is, is he going to reoffend and actually hurt somebody next time? You know? So whose fault is that? The guy who has an eight-year-old mentality or the system itself who's not prepared to deal with someone like him? How do we deal with that as a society? You know, a man who has to steal a kid because he's alone. You know, he has nothing in there. He can't get a job. He... How does he feed himself? He doesn't have a, doesn't have a family to take care of himself. What, what happens? Does he die on the side of the curb somewhere? Like, what, how? No, what's his choices in life? I like to think of myself as a forgiving person. I care about the kind of mental health and social justice issues Paul Hebert describes. But I can't imagine having the heart to forgive someone who took my child it's just unfathomable. Between the time Michael vanishes in 1991 and when Keenan is taken and returned in 2011, a lot changed. And how missing children cases are handled continues to evolve. Sergeant Lana Prosper is with the National Center for Missing Persons and Unidentified Remains. She's stationed in Ottawa with the RCMP. I would think the biggest thing that has changed for me when I look at, you know, an investigation from 30 years ago to today is the partnerships and the technology and being able to get that information more accessible for the public. When, when a child goes missing, whether it's a parental abduction or a stranger abduction or just plain missing, you know, 30 years ago, they, they didn't have the ability to move as, as easily as we do today. Um, like I know at the push of a button, I can get into 32 countries very fast. And those countries can then reach into other countries. And, and you just keep doing that. 
The night before I speak with Sergeant Prosper, I see an Amber Alert pop up on my cell phone. I think about how different today's world is than the world in which Michael was taken 30 years ago. You know, because we have so many more tools in our toolbox as investigators now, as compared to 30 years ago, we can share that information more rapidly. So like you said yourself, you got the notice last night on your phone. 30 years ago, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have had a phone. The investigator wouldn't have had the ability to get that information out as fast. It would have been, you know, go get a picture, photocopy, if that was even available at the time, and make some posters. The, the agency that receives the call, yes, they can radio to the next jurisdiction, like 30 years ago, they can radio to the next jurisdiction, they can pass on that information to a very small extent, where today we just have all this technology. And, you know, because we have all this technology, we can rely on more than just law enforcement to locate these children. And having the technology of a smartphone in the hands of a child can also be helpful. If you have a child that has a cell phone, then, you know, and it's an iPhone, you can, can do the iPhone, locate my iPhone type uh, thing. Makes it easier to track. You know, make sure you never turn that stuff off on your children's devices, because that, that will help us find them. And, and the other thing it does is when they leave, they tend to take that technology with them which gives them the ability to say, you know what, I this is not a good situation for me. I'm going to call 911 or I'm going to call my emergency contact, whether that's my mom, my dad, my aunt, my uncle, whoever, and, and get them maybe faster help them than before. Advances in DNA technology could be one of the only ways the Dunahee family will find Michael if he is alive. And it could also assist in matching his remains should they ever be found. The, the National Centre where I work is um, responsible for the National DNA Persons Program. So any and all DNA that is from a missing person or a family member of that missing person has to come through our office to be put into the National Program. If the parents of a missing child want their DNA put in, then they would work with their local law enforcement agencies to have that DNA put into our uh, national database. You know, sometimes we end up that we actually have the DNA of the missing child or the adult, and that can also be put in. Familial DNA gets compared continually against the unidentified remains uh, database profiles and then for the missing person themselves and by that I mean the child or the adult uh, gets compared against other DNA banks that we have as well. And what about things like facial recognition technology and surveillance cameras? How are those tools factoring into missing children investigations today? So, so at times it, it does get a little frustrating. I'm not going to say it doesn't. You know, so some of our partners tend to have better luck with the facial recognition uh, avenue of investigation than we do here. As for the future, Sergeant Prosper hopes that some of the technology available will open up to people like her investigating missing kids. I think we'll just see more and more technology that, um, that would make it available to investigators. When I look at some of our international partners, again, because they have different laws than we do, I see more ability to 
access the closed circuit TVs. I see more access to be able to access different photographic databases that may be available as well. And I would hope that, uh, you know, within Canada, there would be an appetite to, to maybe look at those in a broader sense, um, especially when it comes to the children. Technology, global partnerships. It's a very different world today than it was the day Michael vanished in 1991. But in the end, Sergeant Prosper also knows that finding answers in the Dunahee case could come down to one phone call. One person is, is all it takes. It takes one person to say something, to realize they know something. For example, we, we do know we, we have shown, we have investigated files that the person has been missing for 30 years and, uh, and we do find them and we've found them alive. It just takes one per one person knows something and it takes that person willing to come forward. Michael's story has no conclusion for now. And it is that not knowing that Paul Hebert imagines would be the toughest thing of all. It's the the closure. They don't get the closure, right? They don't get that. It's the ones that are not found. My heart would be ripped apart still to this very day because there's so many questions. Is he still alive? Where is he? What's going on? And that always be hung over you. I don't know. That's, that's something far scarier than anything else, I think, right? And we think, you know, man, they're tough. And our hearts really go out to them. The strength it must take to get up every morning for 30 years without knowing what happened to Michael is beyond what most of us could ever comprehend. The highs, the lows, the wondering that never ends. Well, in the beginning, they were telling us, like keeping us apprised of all the different things that were coming in and when uh, there was a tip they were following up on and, and then they would tell us there was nothing and... And then they finally came to the conclusion, like, yeah, we can't, st- can't continue doing this because they could see the emotional roller coaster that you, you end up being on. You think, oh, this is it. And then, boom. Yeah. It's a, another dead end. Get our hopes really up high and then it, it wouldn't pan out. It, it really took me and Crystal really, really dark, dark and stuff like that. We just, we couldn't do it anymore. Finally, the police, they just wouldn't tell us what they were checking out, <laughs> which is what they do now. No, they, they don't tell us anything specific. They just tell us they're checking out leads and stuff like that. They're, they pulled back what they were sharing with us, but I still know what's good. Like, they tell us, like, with Michelle, the, the, newest, the, the newest investigator that's on the case now, so we, we, we are constantly, we get updates that they're working on new tips that are coming in or are go over, going over other stuff that's, that they've been working on, and but nothing nothing concrete yet. It's really hard because you've got anniversaries, you've got birthdays, everything that comes up, it comes and goes, and it, it, it just continues to go. <laughs> what do Bruce and Crystal think it will take to finally get answers about what happened to their son? Yeah, there's definitely somebody out there, two, maybe one or two people that know what happened, and that's the people we want to come forward to we find out what happened to our son and get him back. Basically, it's could be your next door neighbor. It's, it's not the big bad scary boogeyman. It's it's there's nothing to just tell us otherwise as to what 
or who could have been involved in Michael's abduction. Until they know for certain, those who know and love Michael Dennehy will continue to hope and pray that he is out there alive and that he will someday come home. I'm picturing Michael knocking on my front door, saying he's home, with a family or without a family, with kids of his own, I don't know. Until they show us something other, keep think he's going to be back, mm -hmm. keep the hope going. The Victoria Police believe whomever is responsible for Michael's disappearance is likely already on their radar. I've written an affidavit which includes the information I've unearthed, and I've submitted it to the Victoria Police. I'm not a police agent. I'm a journalist. I'm not bound by the same constraints the police are in this case. So over the past year, I've pushed and prodded, done everything I could think of to move the investigation forward. Throughout the series, I've ended each episode with a plea from one of Michael's heroes to come forward to the Victoria Police. You'll hear that plea again in just a moment. But I also understand there are people who, for whatever reason, will be unwilling to talk to the police. A reminder, there remains a $100,000 reward for information that leads to finding Michael Dennehy. It's been 30 years. Maybe there will never be a big court case, but the Dunahees surely deserve to know where Michael is now. So, if you have information about Michael Dunahee's case, please talk to me. I'm reachable at laura at laurapalmer.ca. And now, once again, a word from one of Michael's heroes. Michael Dunahee loved the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Back when Michael was a little guy, loving the magic of the turtles, I had the privilege of being the voice of Michelangelo. I'm Townsend Coleman, a voice actor, and one of the many people who want answers in Michael's case. The turtles were crime fighters who believed in justice. If you have any information about Michael, please head to michaeldunahy.ca and click on the Report a Tip button. Please take a moment to rate and review Missing Michael. Those reviews help keep Michael's story in the public eye and keep the pressure on those with information to step up. I'm Laura Palmer. This is Missing Michael. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together and we were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.